I was told that seeing the earth from space changes the lens through which you view the world. But I was not prepared for just how much that would be true. Looking back at earth from up there, the atmosphere seems so thin, the world so finite and so fragile. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Untelevised the podcast, the second episode of season three. Untelevised is the podcast where we explore possibilities for social change. And that essentially means looking at what the world is, what we might want it to be and how we might get there, including what part we all play in that process. My name is Viseo and my co-host is Mona. How are you this episode, Mona? <laughs> How am I just for this episode? Yes, right now for this episode, I'm I'm good. I'm glad you didn't ask me that on a much like grander, more macro scale. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd be very specific. very specific. It's quite an existential question. So I wanted to like give you a specific focus. We're getting existential enough, I think, with the topics. So yes, we'll focus it in. I am fine right now in this second as we record, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like we um, had a bad habit of constantly complaining of tiredness in episodes um in seasons one and two so I'm going to try and have season three as a slightly more positive answer to the, to the how are you question if, if possible but I feel like tiredness is something that never quite leaves no but I did actually arrive this morning telling you that I was actually less tired today so actually I'm like yes we're gonna go for it we're gonna take on season three with a bit more energy um but yes um excited to be back in the flow of doing these because yeah. it's been a little while yeah. um and especially excited because you know this is a different type of season I mean this is a yeah it's a new approach Collab collaborative season literally yeah. <laughs> that's the theme it's really exciting to have the opportunity to collaborate isn't it because we speak so much about collaboration and the power of collaboration so to actually be able to bring it to the podcast and so early in our journey I mean 22 episodes is not <laughs> is not a lot in the grand scheme of things so we're really excited to have this collaboration with Lush Spring Prize, Lush Ethical Consumer and of course um, we always thank Lankeli Chase for making this possible. Yes, so what we're essentially asking with today's episode is can climate change, climate justice or, you know, true regeneration actually be achieved within our current capitalist system? As we see our kind of world leaders get together as we just have the past couple of weeks um, for COP26, the 26th climate change summit that they've held. We're essentially looking at whether are they the people who can create this change? Um, is it possible without completely overhauling the system that arguably has created our climate destruction in the first place? 
We've done an episode of Capitalism before, um, and I just want to say to anybody tuning in now, possibly for the first time, um, if you go back to season one, we have an episode dedicated very specifically to actually just breaking down capitalism itself. Like, what is it? Um, you know, pros, cons, how did it come to be, its history, etc. So really recommend that you go listen to that episode yeah. as context for this one. Yeah. Um, so once you've done that and you've come back, <laughs> hello again, <laughs> then we can sort of take on capitalism in terms of where it sits in the fight for climate justice and climate change um, and, you know, regeneration, which um, is what the Lush Spring Prize is focused on. But I guess we probably do want to be defining a few words again this time around. Yeah, please. I mean, I'm not going to go back and listen to the episode because I don't like the sound of my own voice. So I would really appreciate if you could um, do a little bit of an explanation so we can jump into our conversation. Uh, so should we move to the learn section? Yeah, let's move to the learn section. Okay, so the big C word, not COVID, the other one, capitalism. <laughs> um so just really brief summary here, guys. Um, capitalism is basically the current system that we live in. I want to say globally. I, I don't. I don't know. We, we're trying to see if there are little pockets, you know, islands we've never heard of, you know, somewhere far afield where capitalism is not the system by which people on some level are governed and trading. But I, I'm not. I'm not sure it exists. If anyone is listening who knows of it, please do let us know, and then we will all book kind of one-way tickets there. But um. Capitalism is our current economic and political system that governs um, our nations and, you know, how we as people and as nations trade with each other, interact with each other. You know, essentially the fact that money exists, um, labor is purchased, um, people can make profit from one another, from each other's labor, from from property, um, that there is something called the free market, which, you know, we all kind of operate within. Um, and that within that, within capitalism, different countries, um, you know, will, will practice it to kind of greater or lesser degrees. Um, and you can have you know, governments will regulate um, the cap a capitalist free market to greater or lesser degrees. And we've spoken previously about the welfare state, which is another thing that you, sh you know, you can go look up, which is, you know, um, services that a government might put into place within a capitalist system to at least offer some securities to its citizens, but essentially profit is still what drives and like runs the market that we all live in and how we all engage and trade and negotiate with one another. Um, you will hear our guest today refer to neoliberalism, which again, we do define in our capitalism episode, but neoliberalism is a kind of um, slightly you know, newer um, evolution of capitalism, which essentially almost means kind of capitalism on steroids. It's sort of like capitalism in its most um, free roaming state, so where, for example, let's say here in the UK in our capitalist economy, you know, you might still have our government set certain standards like saying there has to be a minimum wage for workers, you know, there has to be a living wage maybe even for workers or, you know, even if that's going to curb the profits that, you know, companies can make, you have to give some sick pay, you have to give some holiday pay, etc. That is an example of capitalism being a bit restricted and being a little bit sort of monitored by external influences, by our governments. 
neoliberalism is the ideology that sort of believes in the market being free to run as wild as it possibly can, that we shouldn't regulate capitalism, that, you know, whatever profits we can possibly make should be made. So neoliberalism is like a sort of real extreme version of capitalism as opposed to a slightly more state-monitored capitalism. So again, do go back to our episode on those um, to understand a bit more in depth about these theories, but that's the kind of overview. Now, another word that I think is useful to define because it comes up in our conversation is intersectionality. Now put very simply, intersectionality is the idea that everyone has their own unique experiences of discrimination and oppression. And we must consider everything and anything that can marginalize a person. So I like to personally think of it as a Venn diagram. You know, the circles that we, the overlapping circles that we learned about in school, where each part of our identity gets a circle. So our gender, our race, our class, our sexual orientation, our physical ability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So intersectionality would be highlighting the spaces where the different layers overlap. And these intersecting and overlapping social identities may be both empowering or oppressing or a combination of the two. So in terms of fighting for system change, This is important because it means we're also identifying and acknowledging the interdependent systems that discriminate a person or disadvantage a person. And it means that any solutions that we identify should also be nuanced and take into consideration different lived experience. So to give an example, which will hopefully make things a little clearer, I'll do some of my own Venn diagrams, just a small portion of it. <laughs> so one circle, I would have my womanhood and in another circle, I would have my blackness and those two would overlap. So if we were to consider some gender-based system change um, in the sense of, let's say, childbirth, I would then, by considering those two things, discover that in the UK where I live, black women specifically are four to five times more likely than other women to experience death in childbirth. So all women need better opportunities within childbirth, but black women specifically are four to five times more likely to face the adverse effects of it. So that's quite a good way to show you how considering the overlap in identities and the intersections of identities means that we have a considered approach to how we fight any type of system that needs changing. And by not acknowledging that, will miss many gaps that inform many people's lived experiences. The term was actually first coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw back in 1989, but it was only actually added to the Oxford Dictionary very recently in 2015, and that's actually because of its increased importance being recognised in the world of activism. Many activist movements, like the feminist movement, weren't acknowledging the different parts of people's identities and therefore solutions that were being proposed were actually erasing a lot of the different voices and people within groups that needed to be heard and considered. So now that we've got some of our key terms defined, um, it's time to jump into our discuss section of the episode as we always do. And to kick off this season co-produced with the Lush Spring Prize, we thought it was only right to speak to a couple of people who've been really involved with the Spring Prize and with the kind of questioning and decision-making that has gone into sort of awarding these prizes and considering regeneration. Um, And we wanted to 
look at it from the two different sides of the fence, so to speak, you know, how you might fight for climate justice within capitalism and then sort of outside of capitalism or against capitalism. And so we wanted to bring in two people who have experience of slightly sitting on both the different sides of that fight um, to see how these two coexist, complement each other, contradict each other. As always, you know, it's it's never simple. So I'm first up this week and I was tasked with looking at fighting for climate justice within the capitalist system, which is quite exciting for me because it's something that is a little bit unique on the Untelevised podcast. We speak so much to people that are working against the system. So it's interesting to speak to someone working within it, but still fighting for some kind of change. And that someone is Ruth Andrade. Now, Ruth is the head of environment at Lush, where she focuses on three aims. The first is leading the brand strategy on regenerative impact. The second is supporting their organisational development based on living systems. And the third is helping to evolve Lush's charitable giving strategies. Now, Ruth's enthusiasm for fighting for change and especially the concept of regeneration extends far beyond her role at Lush. She's also the co-founder of an organisation called Realliance, which is a collective of practitioners that bring regenerative design to the humanitarian sector. And she's also the co-creator of Regenerosity, which is an initiative for finding, funding and learning from the planet's most regenerative projects. Ruth describes herself as being passionate about how to leverage the power of a global brand to do good. So after learning all that, I was super excited to sit down with Ruth to discover what that means, a global brand doing good. Lush was founded by activists and and it also had the culture of employing activists, you know, so those are people interested in creating change. And I, I think one approach that Lush has had is, I think we've tried to do capitalism better which is, you know, 10% of the company's shares are owned by staff. We're not on the stock market, so we don't have to be in the pockets of shareholders. All the shareholders are, are still the founders and they're still all working the business and they're really passionate about that stuff. You know, so being a fair taxpayer and paying the living wage here in the UK, even though we don't do that in all markets, it's something that is quite high on our priority list now. Um, it's about, you know, ensuring that, you know, our supply chain uh, is free from animal testing. It's ensuring that we are uh, really using our position to do, to do good in the world and even better, like to help, really help restore and regenerate. That's one aspect, which is like the, the things that are within our sphere of control and it's about our impact as a business. The second is how can we be a platform? And I think that's that's all we've always uh, tried to do at Lush. It's not that we are necessarily going there and designing system change or engendering system change. It's more like the high streets are a great place for campaigning. So what does it look like if we then land our platforms, like literally land our uh, shop windows and our social media and our staff 
to causes so those causes can get more visibility. So that, that was always that aspect of us, you know, really just giving platform. And from a giving perspective, I think we started Charity Pod in 2007 as well. And it was a similar approach. It's like, we, we don't want to tell, you know, we don't want to be the kind of strategic funder that designs the strategy and then you go out into the world funding what you think is correct. It's more like, how can we resource, you know, grassroots activism for what they're telling us that they need in a really trust-based approach without a lot of barriers to reach fund to get funding, but small amounts of funding that can really do good work. So I think that that has been how we have uh, contributed to, to, you know, system change. And, and I do know that like, we funded so many, we funded over 300 anti-fracking groups in the UK, you know, there are, we funded a lot of climate activism. We fund, we have funded so much human rights um, activism. And like, to be fair, we even had, we, at some point we had to rein it back. That was a year that we gave <laughs> away nine times more money than we made profit. Yeah, I think we made less than a million pound profit in the UK and we gave in group and we gave 9 million away. You know, it's, it's like now with COVID, we had to, you know, we had to like also look out for the survival of the business. Um, and then of course, unfortunately our giving is connected to sales. So only now we're seeing it go back. Um, but yeah, all we're doing is, you know, uh, giving back a little bit of the extraction of capitalism. I think you've given a powerful answer there that has so many different strands that I want to explore a bit more. So I'm going to try and do that articulately. <laughs> so um, I want to start and stay in this, this space of um, business just for a little bit. If you know, how are you seen by other businesses? Do you know, do they kind of see you as an inspiration or are they like, oh, that kooky business over there, <laughs> they're kind of like outsiders, they're crazy for doing this, how they do it? Or do you find businesses come to you and say, actually, how can we be better? Can you can you even coach us? Can you give us advice? I think that has also changed over the years. Like if you if you consider that we've been talking about, you know, fighting animal testing when Lush was founded in 1995 and we were already like creating cosmetics without packaging. And then we were talking about ethical supply chains in like 2007 and regeneration like 2009 and this really radical way of, you know, giving money to activism it's already nearly 15 years old so i think in the past we would definitely be seen as the outsiders or you know either the hippies or the punks of the cosmetics industry and i remember because i started working for lush in 2004 and i was like the environmental officer i did a lot of um a lot of talks in conferences. And I used to say, I said, oh, I always feel like I'm either the clown or the, you know, or the angry, <laughs> the angry anarchist on the stage, like being super critical, but also talking about all these things that we're doing that, that for people is just so beyond what they could conceive. And now it's like, now we're, now we're not even that pioneer like we I don't feel we are the forefront of that work anymore you know I mean the world has really caught up like if you look at how many you know now to talk about products with no packaging it's 
an obvious thing. It's not like, wow, this is the most radical thing I've heard today, you know, or like to support campaigning or even to talk about regeneration. So at the same time, this is a little bit, um, uh, it's hard for us because suddenly we're not, you know, we're not that special anymore, even like as having that unique place in the market. And on the other hand, it's like, well, I think we've done, if our work is to leave the world larger than we found it, you know, and create a cosmetics revolution, then we've also achieved that, that goal. So um, yeah, so it's nice that we have been more and more an inspiration rather than just this crazy outsiders that are, you know, a bunch of, of yeah, of activists. And it's also hard to think like, what's next? You know, how do we get even more radical? Like, how do we stay radical? I don't think Lush has managed to stay radical um, when everyone else, you know, has also moved towards being a little bit more focused on impact. So yeah, I keep thinking like, what, what would it be to be really, really radical right now? That actually transitions me perfectly onto what I wanted to ask you about next. There's a concept that I've recently found a word for called recuperation. Um, and essentially recuperation is the cultural appropriation of subversive works by mainstream culture. So altering the meaning behind radical ideas because they're being co-opted into dominant discourse. And we've seen it a lot with climate justice. Um, also similarly with racial justice, things like Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm really interested then how things can be done authentically. And that chasm between sort of brands, corporations, celebrities getting involved and furthering the cause and making the cause accessible or attractive to mainstream culture and getting more people involved. But also, like you say, how do you stay radical within that? Because once concepts become mainstream, they tend to lose that radical heart and they tend to become diluted. Even being on spaces like Instagram and trying to make these concepts accessible, you notice how you start beautifying things and let me make this pink and look nice and say it in three words so that people people's attention is maintained. And it's like, that takes away from all of the nuance of what we're trying to do if I'm trying to say it in three words in a one minute video. So um, one of the things I'm really interested in talking to all of the organizations that we're speaking to about is how do you actually do this authentically whilst balancing reaching enough people to actually make an impact? I, I think my answer to that also has really changed in the last 10 years. I think even I have become less radical and part of it is because I really think deep in my soul, we're running out of time. And the science is really scary and things are really scary. And what's happening with, you know, the, the power of social media in creating a much more polarized world also means that people are even aware that those things exist. You know, they, they are even aware of the importance of protecting rights, the, the, the forest protectors and indigenous peoples and, you know, trans rights and black rights and animal rights, like, all of that is out there in a, in, a, in a way that a lot more people hear about those things and they engage in those things. And you can see the, like there is a young generation that already came with um, rights etched in their culture, you know? Like they don't need to be convinced or to be shown. They're just understand equality. And at the same time, you have the rise of the right and, you know, and record uh, indigenous peoples and land defenders being murdered every year and everything that's happening you know, with, with climate. And 
and even though there are some improvements overall, like we're still, you know, we only increased uh, uh, CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and we've only increased deforestation to the point where Amazon now it's a net emitter rather than a net carbon sink, right? So my thing now is, I think there are maybe, and I don't wanna be binary here, but I think there are maybe two pathways. One is, do we stay radical? And then we walk into collapse, having figured out how we're gonna come out of collapse, right? So what we build now is the post-capitalist structures and make sure that we have enough foundation so that we can, we can really rebound and regenerate after collapse. I think that's one path. And then we should stay radical. And then we should really, really try to prototype like forget, you know, forget trying to change, forget social change now. This is about social design, you know, and like, how do we even conceive so we don't have another Arab Spring where, you know, you, systems crumble, but there is an or occupied, like the system is about to crumble, but there is nothing else, nothing else in its place of scale. And that has had enough thinking and design around it and, and, and collaboration. And then, you know, the, 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 hegemonic forces or authoritarian forces, they're in a much better place to occupy empty spaces, much better than us as a social movement. So yeah, what do we do? Or do we say, look, we need everyone now and the only way we can, we can scratch the surface at, at like climate change is by having governments and big corporations and Shell involved, you know, and Coca-Cola and Nestle and the mining companies and, and then we are we are okay to disagree, but to at least sit at the table with them and to at least, you know, I'm gonna engage in that process because I know that that process is important. And that's, you know, Paris Agreement and the COP process. And and I I I don't know, I I really I think we may maybe we need to do both. Uh, but I think I'm much more likely to sit at the same table as Nestle now. But before I would have walked out of the room. Now I'll sit. I'll sit at the table with them, and I'll actually listen to them, because I think some of them are doing work at scale. I'm not even going to say good work, but at least it's work at scale, and it's a scale that Lush cannot even think about doing. You know, working with regenerative agriculture with 140,000 farmers. You know, it's like that level of scale um yeah i don't know so i ask myself those questions every on a daily basis like how much of my soul am i willing to sell because we probably only have 10 years like to do anything meaningful so yeah i and i always say that lush is my happy my happy ground between impact and integrity is probably mm -hmm. still a little bit less integrity than if I were working, you know, for a really radical social justice organization or environmental justice organization, but it has more impact than if I were working for a small grassroots, you know, so everyone needs to find their balance point between impact and integrity and how much of your integrity are you willing to sell to have more impact? Like, I, I, I have not seen yet, like, holding on to integrity and having widespread impact like maybe Greta you know like I've also seen the impact of her but they are very unique individuals yeah even rather than movements yeah because the big movements like 
I don't know, in Brazil, the, the you know, landless movements and Land Workers Alliance, Via Campesina, all of that, they're doing incredible work. They're also getting massively shut down as more right-wing governments coming to power. So it's like, yeah, sorry that I don't have an answer. Just my own internal <laughs> questioning. <laughs> no, I think your internal questioning actually was such a valuable answer because it perfectly, for me anyway, illustrates um, the um, conflict between the macro and the micro and trying to do them simultaneously. I wanted to establish which of the two you more align with. Do you think we can actually have change within the capitalist system? Or do you more strongly align to the fact that we actually have to abolish this system and it has to be something completely new? I don't know if we can reform capitalism. If you, if you look at the world right now, we have, you know, this mass concentration of wealth in the hands of the Jeff Bezos and, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg or the Clintons or the Gates. Um, so there is a, a lot, a lot, a lot of wealth concentrated and they are designing a new capitalism. Yeah, they are designing a new capitalism where those corporations are much more powerful than governments and they can elect whom they want and they can break the country that they want. Like really the power is in their hands. So they've already transformed capitalism, which uh, means that capitalism could be transformed. Uh, maybe <laughs> if we have that much power. Uh, or that, uh, you know, what is the balancing force to that of like, can we have more ethical capitalism or impact-led capitalism? And what are the parts of capitalism that are interesting, like entrepreneurship and innovation? And, you know, um, also in, in a way that there is an aspect of, uh, of trade that, that is very much, that can be done like a living system, you know, like those trades that like, uh, trade relations that support a very resilient ecosystem because you have some redundancies because you have more you know more people that are providing for the same needs and you have diversity like we could redesign that to be a really healthy thriving living system based means of exchange for me that's like the the, the post-capitalism but I don't know I don't know if it's realistic right now, knowing how much power these corporations have, that we can really get there, you know, not in smaller pockets, like in my neighborhood or in my tower, you know, mm -hmm. developed by regionalism. But I still think we should try because again, if there is collapse, you know, we need to have something ready and that, you know, bioregional economies that are, you know, bioregional regenerative economies, I think we should, have a goal at, at trying to create this anyway, because, you know, whichever direction we go, I think the answer is the same. It's like, we need, we need to even figure out what's gonna be post-capitalism, right? Whether it's because it's transformed or whether it's because it collapses. I think the, the, that design work is the same. Mm. No, completely, you're, you're right. The design work there, I guess, is the same. So I think one of the issues that I often fall into the trap of is wanting definite answers and actually a lot about system change is actually just the experimentation taking the process and actually maybe then you find which of those paths works most just because you're acting and trying and experimenting um you spoke there to one thing i want to briefly touch on which um was the power actually that philanthropic giving or charitable giving can actually give to corporations <laughs> um like you say these corporations can it 
can have more power than governments through um, giving charitably rather than um, paying taxes and donating to the bigger pot. Um, these companies can decide what matters essentially. So I'm deciding that, um, I don't know, healthcare matters because that's where I'm putting my money, but I'm also deciding specifically what organization gets to just dictate that. Often my own organization, my own links, et cetera. I'm deciding what solutions matter, et cetera, rather than central government. And I wonder, um, I wonder what that looks like and whether that's right or wrong. Is government the best place to make these decisions? Are governments necessarily making the decisions in the majority's interest, et cetera? Um, and then on the other end of the scale, the other thing that I also found interesting is the idea that sometimes charity can actually disguise the true scale of injustice because when we're giving and giving um, and the people on the ground, um, especially at the grassroots, are sort of upholding society, so often it make it means that um, the majority can't actually see how bad issues are because there are people that are constantly patching it up and making sure that people don't fall through the cracks which of course is very noble but means that actually we're not holding governments to account because we can't even appreciate the true scale of how bad things can be um, and I wanted to briefly just yeah pose those two sides to you and um, give you an opportunity to speak on them more and what your sort of approach is and your opinion is on those two things. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I always say that, you know, the, these big foundations, like they are shaping the world through capitalism and through the economy. And then they're shaping civil society, like they're shaping the response of civil society to some of the of the world's problems in the way that that belongs to their worldview, you know, which is very mm -hmm. male, white, you know, dominated, like, um, worldview. And, and it's really sad and we can see what's happening out there and how, you know, the, the work that, that is done in the name of good. And then the second point, I see that in the UK a lot, right? The UK mm -hmm. is like, you, you can have a conservative government that really defunds all social services because you count on charity. Like you count that, that you know, people are not gonna let that happen, that they will fundraise you know, and, and make that happen. I often think about this as well. It's great that that like Lush pays so much tax, but what's happening to that money and what is it funding? And um, I, I still think it's correct. Like you shouldn't have, you know, Amazon transferring all UK sales onto Luxembourg or so many corporations paying so little tax and billionaires and all of that. Uh, so I still think paying tax is better than uh, not paying tax and then setting up these big foundations. But we also need to transform, you know, our our government and transform that process of, you know, can we create citizens assembly? Can we do participatory budgeting? Can we do, you know, all those much more progressive democratic ways of people actually deciding how their own money is going to be spent on services that actually matter to to everyone, not just to a few people. Um, but with philanthropy, I think there is an inherently like horrible like hole. And, and what I see a lot as well is, is then the third part of this one is, right, they are, uh, you know, big corporations or big or billionaires are making all this money while destroying the world. Then they create these funds, you know, to try to patch things up. But if you look at where they're actually investing their foundation money, then you're like, oh my god you're like you're investing fossil fuels at the same time you're like funding the groups that are fighting against fossil fuels it's like 
It doesn't make any sense. And then you look at this extremely progressive foundations and they're like, we aim that by 2030, all of our money is going to be on ethical investment. Or we aim that by 2025, it's like, just spend your endowment now and like put the money onto, onto like better investments because they already exist. So again, it's like, yeah, perhaps if we didn't only have 10 years, we could take a more radical approach. Now we also need to touch the, you know, $130 billion that are in donor advised funds just doing nothing in the US while being used to, you know, invest and, and grow uh, money in ways that we would never want to use that money for. So how do we also do things in a way that that connects to, to the good people out there? There are also these really incredible wealth holders and a lot of heirs that they've already understood that they can't continue you know this scale of of accumulation thank you Ruth thank you for your openness your honesty and for sharing your inner thought process with us um it's such a complicated space to operate in and um this sort of dual mission of changing systems from within or changing systems whilst also aiming to navigate them successfully you know uh, and I'm very conscious that it's easy almost to point the finger at corporations and maybe not make the distinctions between corporations and acknowledge that there are some corporations that are at least trying to have intention behind what they're doing and more consciousness of what they're doing um, to our environments, to our societies, etc. Um, so it's encouraging to listen and hear someone within a corporation having this good intention and at least considering these bigger questions, you know. Um, but most people that are listening aren't corporations, they're individuals or they're grassroots groups and movements with far less resource even than someone like last year you identified as quite a small player <laughs> when we consider the global scale of things. So if, like me, they're feeling inspired by our conversation, but also slightly overwhelmed, um, what would you say that they can do within their own remit to make change. So on a micro level to contribute to the more macro change. Any small tips for some quick wins in that space? We, we try and ask our guests to leave our listeners with some practical actions that they can take because I think sometimes we can exist in this theoretical space, uh, but the actual actions in our real lived environments, I think is some of the most important things that we can leave people with, as well as just thinking about these questions. I think the first thing I'll say is buy Charity Pot. <laughs> we have a really brilliant product called Charity Pot and 100% of the money minus uh, VAT goes to grassroots, grassroots activism, but also most of the ingredients in that, um, in that product are supporting also grassroots farmers that are working with regenerative agriculture. It's, you know, the, the whole thing around that project is, is designed so systemically. So it's like you have this multitude of what we call like cascading benefits. You know, how, how can we design our systems to have more cascading benefits? And I think that's also a good metaphor for like our own personal action. It's like, 
uh, it's important that we get, engage in personal action where we can also have cascading benefits of that personal action. So I always say, uh, I think personal action has a great role to play in your own integrity. So being able to speak from experience and speaking from, I'm already, I'm already trying to live the lifestyle that I'm, you know, that I, I would like people to live. Like people are influenced by their peers. You're not influenced by campaigns that you watch on TV or things that you see, you know, uh, on a billboard. You are influenced by what your neighbors are doing, what your friends are doing, what your friends are doing. So that's the cascading benefit of your individual choice is really the highest, most surest way of influence people around you is to have conversations with them. Um, I also think money is an important one. I think uh, investment is a very overlooked aspect of individual choice that actually has a lot of, um, can, can have a lot of uh, cascading benefits. Like where is your pension? If your pension is not, you know, with an ethical pension, how can you approach your university or your employer? Um, what bank are you banking with? Um, and then actually engaging with uh, polit politics somehow. And it doesn't mean like just voting or even though I think that's important, it's, it's really organizing, uh, like connecting to um, organized ways of doing local governance. So yeah, joining yeah groups in your community, in your neighborhood, citizens assembly. Like I think I'll, I think there is a lot of potential in us. And again, thinking what action can I have that will have the most amount of of positive benefit if I invest my time. And I think organizing can meet so many needs. What we talked about before, if the future becomes really hard, then organizing gives us some resilience. Organizing, you know, offers a chance to, to trial uh, different systems and, and to start prototyping, you know, what could things look like if, if we were coming from a place of social and environmental justice. So yeah, I think I would say put individual action in service of what can have bigger, you know, influential um, results. So my very last question, Ruth, and I'm going to say it's the hardest question, despite how hard the questions have been that I've asked you, <laughs> is when will your work no longer be needed, if ever? <laughs> my, uh, uh, my personal work is interesting because I also, I think I want to get to a point where I can just disappear or leave and and the work would just continue to to grow and and progress because for me that's that's a, a regenerative uh mentality that you're always creating conditions for systems to grow and develop towards you know being able to hold more life so like life creates conditions conducive to life so how can i be constantly creating conditions for you know more diversity more complexity more um yeah more more life to happen um, but I hope the work is never done because life is also this, you know, infinite unfolding. And as long as we truly learn how to like, you know, co-create with the wild and, you know, be just adding more beauty and more diversity to the planet. I really think this is our role as humanity. And even, you know, as I die, that work will continue because it's one unfolding system, right? With no beginning and no end. So there is no end to the work. And I really believe in the infinite growth and infinite potential of evolution. And 
that that beauty is what drives me in the heart, even though I'm, you know, quite uh, angry as well. <laughs> yeah, I like a radical, radical in my heart. There is also, it's also full of beauty and, and this completely wonderful life that I hope never ends. So this week, I'm speaking to Assad Rayman, who is the executive director of War on Want, um, which is a radical anti-poverty organization, a non-profit fighting against the root causes of poverty, inequality and human rights violations, so not charity in its traditional sense of the word. I was particularly excited to do this interview because War on Want is actually the first ever organization that I set up a direct debit to as a young person with my own money to start making donations to. And I did that because when they approached me on the streets as they do and spoke to me, I could really hear that it sounded like they were taking a radical approach to social justice as opposed to a charitable approach to social justice. So. Assad has been a leading climate justice activist, um, as well as fighting against for many other movements like the anti-racist, the alter-globalization, and the anti-war movement for over 35 years. And as he puts it himself, he sees climate justice as being the sort of the biggest, most kind of connecting element which affects all these movements and affects all of us. He also was a judge on the Lush Spring Prize, whom we are producing this season with. When I was first involved in sort of, I suppose, environmental and climate justice issues, I was often told, I said, you're just too radical, right? You should be pragmatic um, because that's the way to achieve change. Um, you should accept that we, we have to live within the system and the best we can do is tinker with the system. And my response to always that was, well, the only people who say live within the system are the people who are not dying from the system, right? That's the only way in which you think that your starting point of thinking that that's an acceptable starting point to say, this system is something that either can be reformed or tinkered with. Because, but fundamentally, the realities for the majority of people in the world is that this system is not broken because I think the idea that you know the system is broken and we can fix it. No, this system has been constructed with a, in a with a particular view. It's been constructed and it's been hugely successful. And it's been constructed to extract wealth from both people and resources to be, to 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 exploit and to benefit the few. But it's not simply ideological, right? I mean, it's not simply like an airy-fairy concept or, or saying, oh, you know, you're, 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 you're talking about some huge big change. It's actually very real and practical. You only need to look at and say, how is it that we've known about the climate change, right, for a good hundred and some plus years, but let's say the, the, the real alarm bells were being rung in the 1970s. How is it in the 1992, we had the climate convention being signed, the convention on biodiversity, the convention on desertification, and why is it, despite all of those things, we are now on the edge of catastrophe uh, with killer floods, fires and famines. When, when we, the harvest evidence was known, governments knew the climate crisis was happening, was real, and it was causing 
huge losses of lives, livelihoods, and destroying our ecosystems. So why why didn't governments act then? And you, people are unable to answer that unless you say, well, that's because they were trying to act within the system and the system doesn't allow it. It's not possible to say within the system, you are going to make the changes that are needed to keep us well below 1.5 because it's a very, very dramatically different kind of system that you need to live on. Poverty and inequality. Is it a question of that we don't have enough uh, wealth in this world? We've abundant wealth. So why is it half the world struggles to survive on less than $5.50? Why is it people are going hungry? Why? I mean, there is no answer. I mean, the system can't answer that. You can say, oh, well, we'll it'll somehow at some point in some time in the future, we this will get better. Well, you know, what, 100 years, 200 years? How much, what are you willing to sacrifice in lives, in destroyed lives, to get to this point where, you know, you they argue that somehow people will be able to live with dignity. It's just not, it's simply not possible. In a finite planet with finite resources, it's not possible to have the transformation that is needed. So absolutely not. You cannot change and live within this system. You have to fundamentally, as the, now the saying goes, uproot this system if we genuinely want to tackle the multiple crisis that we face. So just to kind of come back on you on that, you know, for people who say that capitalism kind of is um, is the ultimate freedom, you know, you don't put restrictions um, on people, on entities, whatever, you know, like the free market controls everything. And that is what kind of encourages people or motivates people to kind of work hard and try hard and, you know, we can produce anything and, and so on. Um, and that worry that if we take that away, um, society becomes stagnant or that there is no motivation um, for production and for growth and therefore that to me almost would imply that okay so is capitalism the absolute best soil for us to innovate around you know climate change and the technologies we need and so on what would you say to that I mean you've said some stuff already but what is the kind oh, well, of counter argument to that when we think about capitalism and say what are the defining features here right the unfair unfettered power of capital right of corporations of the logic of privatization of looking to the market solutions of deregulations and of a shrinking state well what have we had you know we have a, a world where nothing has value unless it can be commodified uh, bought or sold uh, yes we have freedom freedom for some, only on the back of exploiting, enslaving others. And, you know, and freedom for what? I mean, you know, I think it's an illusion to the people. I, I live in East London, to the families here working zero hour contracts, you know, working two jobs, living in substandard housing, you know, unable to feed their families, worrying about whether they should heat their homes in the evening, or to the people all around the world struggling to barely survive, not be able to live with dignity. What has capitalism brought them? It's brought us an illusion that somehow, you know, work hard, work hard, work hard, and uh, life will be better. I mean, it's proven not to be true. That's not been the recipe for where, in which people have lifted themselves out of poverty and inequality. And now with the paradigm of, of growth, you know, growth for what? I mean, growth is, you know, has it benefited the majority of people? You know, growth is, is, is overwhelmingly about 
profit extraction of a profit. And so, yes, we had a massive capital accumulation. Now, of course, in the last year alone, the billionaires of the world, you know, saw their wealth increase by five and a half trillion dollars in the midst of a pandemic at the very moment where, you know, hundreds of millions of people are being chucked into extreme poverty, you know, you know, barely not even able to feed their families. So, uh, it, it, you know, the idea that capitalism gives us freedom. No, I think capitalism doesn't give us freedom. I mean, you know, when we look through the history of humanity, you know, and think about the things that we celebrate, you know, the things that we celebrate are achievements of people, of social progress, a collective progress, you know, and even the, you know, the pinnacles of, of capitalism have all been ultimately by state intervention. You want to put somebody on the moon? State intervention. Uh, you want to go to war? It's state intervention. You know, they don't leave all of these and say, ah, magically the market will deliver. They don't say, well, you know, I'm sorry, there's war, the market will just decide. No, absolutely not. The state intervenes because it knows the market can't and won't. It regulates it and delivers what it can, what it wants in terms of a goal. So we can regulate our economy to deliver social goods, to deliver well-being, and say actually all of our economy should have a single pursuit: the well-being of both people and the planet. It should have a single pursuit: limiting temperatures warm to well below 1.5, tackling global inequality and injustice. Without you know, a new wave of extraction. And it's a very, very different economy then. You're talking about circular economies and circular worlds of sharing them equitably in cooperation and solidarity. This is simply just not possible under the, our current economic model. And, and it's been shown. And if, if we wanted a, 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 just even an example of this, is just look at what happened over the last year with the COVID pandemic, you know, you have two stories of what happens with the COVID pandemic. You have, on one level, in the richest countries in the world, governments threw away all the rule book on neoliberalism. What did we see? Massive intervention into the state, massive intervention into health systems, furlough schemes, everything to control the economy and control market and safeguard people's citizens. And on the flip side, to the overwhelming majority of the world, Yes, we had politicians saying no one is safe until everyone is safe. And yet, what have we seen? We've seen the lowest hanging fruit, vaccines, COVID vaccines, produced overwhelmingly through taxpayers' money and research, have been, have, are now at the behest of pharmaceutical companies to maximize their profits. So much so that the poorest countries of the world are at 1%. Uh, vaccination rates. It's likely it'll be 2024 before many countries in the global side even have access to vaccines, let alone be able to afford the vaccines. You know, if there's one thing that the pandemic has shown is the free markets can't deliver health, that we're not in the same boat. It, it exposed all the structural inequalities and injustices. And that's why even the most vehement uh, advocates of capitalism talk about a reset of capitalism, of greening capitalism, of controlling capitalism's, you know, uh, 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 capriciousness. I, I mean, this is not a system that has delivered for the majority of the world, and even for the richest in the world. Yes, we can consume, 
and we can consume and consume and consume. But look at the levels of, of mental health, of, of illness uh, that exist in the global north. Right? It's, it's not making us any happier. And what did we value during COVID? We valued green space. We valued sense of community. We valued the we. And people said, yes, it's a pandemic, but they took, they, they took those as being what were most important to them. So an economy that uh, delivers to the purpose of a political and social goals is what we want, not an economy that says, this is our goal. Now we're going to construct the political architecture and the social architecture behind it to justify uh, and legitimize and reproduce this same pattern of exploitation. So, Saad, I mean, you've made a lot of um, references to the global north and the global south um, in that, and we've spoken a lot about the exploitation that goes on um, between the two, and I know you've spoken, you've referenced in your other work, racialized capitalism, like is that the sort of things that you that you mean when you speak about racialized capitalism? What do you mean by racialized capitalism? Or do you, you know, how does that fit within the wider context of capitalism that you've spoken about up until now? Um, and I guess with climate as well, like you said, it's the greatest injustice and it obviously hits some people worse than it does others. I mean, often people think about capitalism, of course, purely in class terms. And I think racialized capitalism has a very, very different way of looking at that. And, and it talks about it more in terms of race and class, right? That race determines class and class also determines race and you know to understand how we get here you know if you look at you know you go back to for example the development of modern capitalism as we know it right and you can go back to anything from like the 15th century to the 20th century and the doctrine of discovery right the idea of western capital going out right and and seeking new lands to to discover well, what was never lost to suddenly discover. Um, they, they had to find a justification, right, for what they were doing. And so the development of capitalism goes along with this idea of a hierarchy, right, of a racial hierarchy and creating the idea of, of, of otherness, right? And the, the idea that was legitimized by the kings and queens, right, that non-Christian lands could be colonized under this doctrine of discovery, right? That the people who actually lived on there were not human and had no value and had no right, no right to the, the, the land and they could be by conquest or by purchase. And what it did was say black, brown, indigenous people had no intrinsic dignity as human beings, right? And, you know, it's codified then by the, the church. The church gives it its, its blessing. And as an economic uh, uh, construct with political legitimacy, it comes it, it begins to develop. And so colonial domination really marches hand in hand with this idea of liberty in, in, in the global north of, of the idea of enlightenment in Europe and the United States. So race as we understand it, you know, becomes a way of turning physical differences into a very different relationship of domination and exploitation. And to me, that's, that begins to help us understand the idea of racialized capitalism and, and its reality, right? Because the reality um, is that it is absolutely acceptable to exploit, exterminate, extract wealth 
from the other and the other overwhelmingly are people of the global south so whether it's the shackles of slavery gunboats of colonialism or you know the financial noose of imperialism and neoliberalism you see the same model again repeated again and again and it, it explains why you know even in mainstream environmentalism right you had uh, what i would call the traditional environmentalists talking about you know limiting temperatures to two degrees and you had movements of the global side saying no temperature level is safe it's deadly we're already dying we have to prevent temperature levels from breaching the one degree and that was a huge split between the climate justice groups of the global south and what i would call the mainstream environmental groups of the north but to me it really summed up this idea that the logic of it's acceptable it's a it's a price of just doing business that some people's lives are not worth the same as other people's lives and that they're willing to be sacrificed and it's written all the way through climate right because there is absolutely no way we would be having a conversation about one and a half degrees or two degrees in the way that we're having if that was overwhelmingly happening to people in the global north it's because those it's been built in and policymakers, you know are 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 actually sitting down and saying europe yes we will be hit yes there will be extreme weather but we can through our capacity of wealth and resources be able to uh, uh respond to those to that climate emergency and we could live with a two and a half degree world we could live with a three degree world etc you know and of course as the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and, and Poverty said, we, we're living in a period of climate apartheid, right? Where the rich will seek safety using their wealth and leave the poor to burn. And to me, that is the story of climate change, of the climate crisis. It's a crisis of racialized capitalism. We do have the 26th UN Climate Conference taking place in Glasgow, where we're, I'm recording this podcast from. Um, do you have any hopes for it? Do you think these things are completely token? Are they smoke and mirrors? Do you think we have to embrace, you know, mainstream institutions and corporations speaking this language as some kind of reform or some kind of progress? Is it is it still a step closer to where we need to get to, or is it just complete distraction um, and actually just detracts maybe even from the deeper work that so many organizers and campaigners are doing all the time? I think it's a very uh, uh, challenging question, right? And it's one that uh, many of us in the climate justice movement obviously ponder a great deal. So we know climate, like many other issues, but climate change, it, climate, the climate crisis, is a problem of the global commons, right? So no one nation can solve it by itself. It requires a global response. So you need a space where globally nations come together and say, this is how we are collectively going to respond to that. Of course, within that, you need people to be doing their fair share and say, absolutely, this is my fair share of effort. And that is a legal requirement, right? Within the conventions, whether it's in the climate convention or the Paris Agreement, is this notion of what is called historical responsibility or common but differentiated responsibilities. The idea that, you know, those who've polluted most, i.e. the richest countries in the world, you know, have a responsibility to do the most uh, to take action, right? It's the 
you broke it, you fix it, right? You polluted, you burned down the house, now you have to do these. And you have to help the less well-off countries also respond to the crisis because one, they didn't cause this crisis. Two, they overwhelmingly face the brunt of this crisis. But three, they don't have the capacity or the resources because of course, the way our global economy has been structured, the global South wealth has been used to develop the global North, right? Uh, and that you know, uh, and that's not just about historical, right? It's not simply about well, you can go back to the 17th century and say, you know, the English Industrial Revolution would never have happened without the profits of slavery. All the profits of slavery is what financed, you know, in the bricks and mortar of everything. Or you can say, you know, go back to colonialism. You know, I'm from the Indian subcontinent. The British Raj during the Indian subcontinent, you know, looted 45 trillion dollars simply from India alone. It said that Britain never spent a single penny of its own money on, on the expansion of capitalism to the new colonies, right? Or, the, or, or its wars, those all were financed by extraction of wealth and resources from, from the colonies. But it's not just an historical fact. To this day, for every dollar that flows from the North to the South, $24 flows from the global south back to the north. I mean, the reality is that three quarters of the world have built this wealth at the top of this world. It's not because the, the global north is somehow through its dint of hard work has been, you know, done all of this. It's just because it's been more brutal and more efficient engine of exploitation than anybody else. And that's what's about. And so when you come to the climate, when you come and you look at the, those UN summits, you know, Yes, they must happen. Yes, we need outcomes. But fundamentally, the weakness of them is a question of power. It's a question of power inside the negotiations because the same structural injustices between the richest countries and the poorest countries are played out. And the same in, uh, disparity of power between us as people and the power of our corporations and big business who have deep pockets, who have the ear of our political leaders. So our political leaders aren't, don't act for our, our interests. They're not acting for the interests of our planet. They are acting in the interests of these powerful vested interests, which is why we have uh, uh, so much focus on, you know, policies that deliver very little emission reductions uh, on banking on unproven and risky technologies like net zero. We have all of that just to maintain as long as possible this idea of business as usual, the idea that extraction of profit can continue. So to me, the, you know, the challenge of the climate negotiations is a fundamental question of power. Now, now in the global south, we've had always had very, very powerful movements for justice that haven't seen the climate fight separate from any other fight. What's been lacking, sadly, is similar movements in the global north. And what we could say is one in the last couple of years, particularly after the IPCC report on 1.5, which said, you know, the, the floods, fires, famines, everything we're seeing is about to spiral out of control. No, no matter what we do then, we will be in a, in, in, you know, in a self-repeating cycle. It's urgent, we must cut emissions. We must cut it, richest countries in this next decade. That has inspired, right, a new movement of people. And so what, this, what these summits do, I think, in that sense is allow us an opportunity to build the intersectional movement that we know is needed, 
right? Linking the labor movement with Black Lives Matter, with migrant justice, with environmentalists, etc. So in that, it's a really powerful thing. Will the outcome of the COP be what we need? Of course it won't. But this is not a fight that is won or lost at one summit. This is a fundamentally a fight, a civilizational fight between the powerful and the powerless and we are building our power. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I won't be, I mean, of course we'll be, we will be disappointed at the outcome, but, you know, I'm not doom laden at the, at the, at the we know what we need. We know what the demands we have to make. Our job now is to build sufficient power. So that becomes the reality, right? And, and that's that's how that falls on us, right? Nobody's going to come save us. Nobody's charging. No cavalry's coming across the hill, you know, trumpeting, saying we're going to save you. Only we can. We as people. So uh, any weaknesses or any critique of this, it's not delivered. It's fundamentally actually a critique of we're not powerful enough. I have great hope, right? Because you know. I'm old enough when I was told, remember when we were told apartheid would never fall, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and it fell not because of governments, it fell because of actions of people in South Africa and solidarity of people around the world. And that's been the story of human progression, the right to vote, the right to join a trade union, the ending of slavery have all come because we as people have, have seized up levers of power and, and made that change happen. We, we can do the same on climate and we can do the same on inequality. We just have to believe. Okay, so on that, um, Asad, um, we like to give people some quite tangible things to walk away from um, as much as possible um, with this podcast. And so we've been in the macro um, for, for, a, for a little while now. So if anyone's listening um, who might even be new to these issues, um, what are some quite tangible in immediate steps they could take um, to, to fight for this cause or to, yeah, to contribute or to sort of um, be involved in some way um, if people walk away from this conversation inspired? Sure, look, you know, whilst I'm always a great believer that we all have individual responsibility and we should do what we can, the, we know that it, this is not about our individual behaviour. This is a structural issue. Mm -hmm. To tackle a structural issue, you need to build collective power. So I would say, you know, build collective power wherever you are, whatever space you're in, whether you're in your trade union, community organization, you know, support the radical movements and the radical organizations that put forward the transformative change. Don't accept the tinkering with the system and work and, you know, and bring new people in. And we have to tell a story of the world and tell a story of the world we're trying to create, inspire people. And, and I think that begins to lay the foundations. And there are lots of tactical fights in there, right? There is a fight that we have to be making, of course, about the role of, of our British banks, which have, and the financial system, which is just handing, you know, close to five trillion to the fossil fuel industry. There's a role of fact that our government is signing trade deals that will make it impossible for citizens of the global south to even if they want to if they win governments that say i want to change to ever ch make a change because they're locked in because of these trade deals we have to fight where we are and that means about the actions of our own government so we have to we have to expose the claim of climate leadership of the uk government as being hollow and then we have to target the institutions banks 
our trading system, our financial system, our corporations. Movements in the global south are doing that. What they need is people here to stand with them. Because uh, all of these companies and banks, they're based in London. They're based in the city of mm -hmm. London. So we have a responsibility, I think, to act collectively in that. But so raise your voice, deepen our understanding, work together and let build collective power. It's a fight that we have to continue and continue until we win. And so I guess on that, I said, if this is even a possible question to answer, and I know you said that you were hopeful. Um, we ask this of everybody who takes part in this podcast, but um, when, if ever, do you think your work will no longer be needed? I mean, I'd like to give a sort of, I suppose, a, a try answer and say, when injustice has vanished from the <laughs> yeah, world. Sure, sure. Well, as, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of, of history is bent and blah, blah, blah. Look, you know, uh, I'm realistic that my small part in this is on the shoulders of movements and giants and of struggles that have come before. I hope, of course, in my lifetime to see some of these victories and, 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 and to happen. Um, but I also see, see that this is a fight you just cannot not fight because the, the failure we will count in, you know, in the lives of millions of people. So everything we're doing, even if it's slowing them down, even if it's stopping them a little bit, that makes a difference. So everything we do makes a difference. Will will it? Will we get to this world of uh, of, of of justice? Absolutely. Look, you know, from time immemorial, people have had this vision of the world, and sometimes we've gone forward, and sometimes we've taken a step back, but. Uh, you don't stop fighting. The word struggle sounds as if it's something is a is a lab like is a labor. It must be really hard. Actually, struggle is incredibly uplifting, and I find it a space of huge love, right? And um, and 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 so I believe I've always struggled because to me that is that is the epitome of of human beings always striving to make things better and finding joy in wanting to make feel things better and finding the we in wanting to make things better. And th those are, th those, you know, are fundamentally what makes us human beings, right? So Fazeo, back in with a bang. <laughs> I think we kind of knew this topic was going to be, well, certainly, I don't know, energizing, aggravating, whatever, you know, you, however you want to describe it. But yeah, what did you think of that? Yeah, I mean, we don't um, do things by halves, do we? No, neither do these guys. <laughs> Straight in there. Um, yeah, exactly. And excellent guests. And actually, I think we have our own personal opinions and I don't think it's any secret that our answer to this question was no, but it was interesting to hear both of our guests have a resounding no as well in answer to the question, especially because they are coming from the um, two very different sides. I guess maybe Assad would be more predictable no, but um, to also hear Ruth say, I essentially don't think that we can have sustained um, climate justice within the system was also quite, um, yeah, it was interesting to hear that. Um, coming from someone who is working within the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this really does um, kind of come back to this, 
I guess this, you know, this tension that we, you know, we constantly are discussing, right? Like, what do you do in the short term? What do you do while we're in this system? How do you use your power and influence and actions and time and whatever while we're here versus what we're then trying to get to, which is ideally working sort of beyond this system and outside of this system. And, you know, we always speak about that, that the the micro macro. And I think that was one of the things that, that really stood out to me with Ruth. You know, she spoke about this kind of impact versus integrity scale almost you know and essentially saying you know every day you might ask yourself do I have to compromise a little bit on integrity to have a wider impact to what extent is the impact worth it when does the integrity get compromised too much that it's not worth the impact or maybe even that the impact you're then having is actually not that impactful anyway because you've diluted the integrity so much and so on but I think that is clearly the the question that all of us, whether it's as individuals or within the organizations we work in, Mm. are kind of battling with every day. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, we all, to some greater or lesser degree, have to work within the system currently. Um, But I also found it interesting, uh, Ruth sort of gave the the ultimatum of the two options, which was we either sort of resign ourselves to the fact that this is going to be how it is and we're going to have we're going to let this world sort of rot or burn um drown whatever the different <laughs> whatever the whatever fate your may choice be of doom yes is. <laughs> whatever your choice of doom may be and we say okay we're going to let this happen but meanwhile um we're going to be building something in the background or we say no we've still got time to make a change and we work on these things simultaneously and i think what was important in that message and also resounding in Assad's message was the need, and we've had it in previous guests, mm. is the need for organisation. Mm-hmm. Like either way, we need to organise and we need to, we need to, yeah, start building these systems um, simultaneously at, as well as trying to make what we're existing in as preferable as possible, mm-hmm. as, as, as desirable as possible. We need to make sure that there's an undercurrent of organization and building these systems. And what I liked about what Assad actually said is there's joy in looking in at these alternatives. The ideas of freedom and joy that were sold within capitalism are an illusion, you know? Actually, the joy is in looking at these alternatives, in experimenting, and um, it reminded me of our previous guest who coincidentally has <laughs> a similar name, Uzza, <laughs> or at least a similar length and some similar letters, but um, in our socialism episode and in our very first episode, our uprising episodes, she also spoke about joy in looking for alternatives and almost it being the purpose of life um i felt that they both had that similar sentiment and it's energizing isn't it to to hear people talk about this process as joyous because i think often you're shown images of like protest and uprising and it it feels like it's rooted in anger and negativity but actually to hear that there's a lot of joy in that process that's definitely the energy i always feel when we're talking to people Definitely, I guess in a way sort of saying, look, we have to live um, however many years we have to live anyway, we have to do something, we have to have some purpose, some vocation, why not make it a dedication to just trying to make things better and better and and actually, you know, yeah, as Ozai said to us in our socialism episode, it literally feels like the meaning of life, like it gives you that purpose and, you know, I guess how you then apply it is is where people sort of vary slightly and you know looking back over our episodes over time 
almost every guest we've spoken to has kind of almost said you have to come at it from all angles because it's such a big beast. And, you know, Layla and Cleo in our systems episode, both were people who have are working within the system as best as they can and then campaigning, organizing, etc. outside of the system as well. And I think, you know, especially hearing from someone like Ruth who works for what we see as a massive business, as a corporation, nonetheless is kind of saying... I will work there because I think they are trying as best as they can with the profits they make to have an impact and maybe more impact is made there in some ways just because we have more resource and Mm. more money. But then there is activism work that you might sort of do um, outside of that. And I, I, I found it very interesting what she said around once upon a time, what we were doing as Lush was perhaps considered very radical. We might have led the way with some of these things. And now weirdly actually maybe the fact that we're going plastic free or that we don't do animal testing or whatever might be less radical like other companies have followed now is that a sign of progress have we led the way have we inspired or is it that actually the idea of radical then has to shift again and go even further afield because has it become a bit diluted you know it like and we have an episode about this coming up actually in a couple of weeks time but it was almost interesting to think about it from a if you were to get very capitalist about it from a branding perspective, yeah. like is Lush's brand <laughs> and, radical yeah, and, and then now they have to reinvent. <laughs> yeah, and introducing again the concept of competition yes. even within this social, social change, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like who's the most radical? Who's like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I found that really interesting as well. That stood out to me, that 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 idea that um, we're no longer special, I guess. Yeah, and she almost said, she had admitted there was a bit of a discomfort within that. Have we lost our place or actually have we led people with us or is it a sign that we need to get more radical because these people we don't necessarily 100% agree with are now using the same words as us. Mm, mm. So then do we push the bar even further? And I mean, we probably would say, yeah, you know, you're constantly... If you're comparing your radicalism to the mainstream, well, then the more the mainstream pulls you in a certain direction, I guess you have to then check again. Do we have to pull the radicalism further, you know, further afield? <laughs> so we've had the comment that um, the fight is the meaning of life. They're looking for alternatives is the meaning of life. And then I feel like you've just said, Mona, that it's also never ending. It's an eternal <laughs> purpose. Because I'm always going to make the bar more radical. Yeah. <laughs> whenever you reach a stage of sort it's like, of... like, nope. <laughs> nope, there's more to do. There's more to go. <laughs> so there you go. You've got an eternal purpose for life there, guys. Don't say we don't give you anything. Yeah, you've got plenty to get on with. Get off listening to this podcast and get out there because it's never going to end. Well, you know, and I guess it's just the question we keep posing people, you know, when if, you know, when will your work no longer be needed? And I mean, we've we've not... Have we had any guests go, oh, I think it'll be not needed in two months time on, no. you know, September the 10th or whatever. I don't think we've had that, have we? I think we've had a lot of guests say, ideally, I won't be needed. Or <laughs> me as an individual might not. But everyone's essentially said, I can't really see a time, at least within my lifetime, where <laughs> this cause won't have a need. Um, so, yeah. I, I... <laughs> yeah. Is that, yeah. It, have we just, have we just uplifted or depressed you even further? We don't know, but let us know. Let us know. Did you listen to this and go, okay, like things are changing or at least people are organizing or, you know, at least I've got some tips. Or did you just go, well, what's the point? I might as well kind of put my feet up and just burn. <laughs> essentially yeah i mean on that note there are some real tangible things the share section we do like to leave you with some real tangible things and like i said to ruth it's really easy to criticize big institutions but there are things we all have 
in our own ecosystems that we have an effect on and we can examine. And actually one of the partners of the Lush Spring Prize, they're not in the names so they often get forgotten, is Ethical Consumer Magazine. And they have loads of resources that can help you identify ways to be more ethical in your choices. Um, and things that's things like where you're banking. So we might not think that actually by putting my money in a bank, I'm investing in certain choices. So they have a list of ethical bankers or ethical pension schemes and stuff like that. So we'll add that to um, the link in our bio and on our website for you to explore more. And you can actually have a look at extracting yourself from these systems and making more ethical choices in that sense. And again, as always, we have a great you know, range of resources um, available both through our previous podcasts on our website. So we have explored you know, alternatives to capitalism. We have a whole episode on socialism, but in a very practical sense, what might it look like? Um, we've you know, visited alternative types of communities. Um, we have a workers' rights episode that really talks about how you kind of unionize and therefore how you organize at that level. We have a whole episode with Ethical Consumer Magazine on ethical consumption. And even sort of how you might create organizations and entities that don't follow the same capitalist models. So like mm -hmm. cooperatives, whether that's for your workplace, for your housing. So within what you have access to, um, there is a lot that you can that, that you can do. Um, and I think definitely, yeah, you know, everyone, Esad, you know, very much the power of that organizing. And also just that it's uplifting, I think, again, to surround yourself with people that share you know those views and are you know that are also working towards your goal like will keep you going at, at times where it just as we unfortunately kind of keep saying feels like it's very very far away yeah I mean you all know that we believe in the power of conversations and collective power because we we talk at you every so often <laughs> and we um and we talk to others and that's our sort of one of our means of of pushing against the system so definitely yeah explore all of those resources and like I said we'll list them both in the description for this podcast and on our website which is untelevised.co.uk and as always we would really like to hear from you do you think that climate change can be achieved within our current capitalist system if so how please tell us send us a manual we'd really love to hear from you um uh, you know as well as checking out all the nominees and winners of the Lush Spring Prize who are all working on these alternatives. Are there more? Are there projects we should know about, projects we should showcase? Um, really always keen to understand, you know, from our listeners, like, did it pose more questions? Did it give you answers? Um, and, you know, what what do we still need to learn? Yeah, we, we love to hear that. And if you would like to do that, um, there are a few ways <laughs> you can get in contact with us on social media we're at untelevised underscore tv on both twitter and instagram so just send us a message on one of those platforms or if you're a bit more traditional you can send us an email at talk to untelevised at gmail.com and the two is the digit two uh yeah like Mona said we would love to hear from you there's always more to learn and your feedback actually has a real impact on what we decide to talk about and who we decide to profile um we've had listener letters actually shape whole episodes in the past so it's not in vain if you do get in touch <laughs> um also we would love if you would follow subscribe rate and review and share this podcast with other people because again that's the power of conversation um, is the more people we reach, the more people that can join that conversation. 
So thank you very much, guys, for joining us for the sort of first meaty topic um, of this season. And we've got three more meaty topics coming for you every week from next week. Yeah. Next up is philanthropy. So <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> Take care, guys. Call me a dreamer. Idealistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't want to come down from my feet Or plan it on start ground For my ground My ground is a cloud